Hi, podcasting from New York. They say if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. This is Pushing Boundaries. Most of today's commentary on complex social issues is binary, unproductive, and flat-out lazy. With this podcast, I'm looking to hopefully elevate these conversations, and as a lifelong educator, hopefully learn a few things along with you. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of Black Man, My Story. I'm happy to introduce my guest. Sure, sure. My name is Rodney Keynes. Uh, I'm a been a resident of Westbury, Long Island for 30 plus years. Um, the proud father of four daughters. Been married for 13 years to my lovely wife, Tracy. Um, re- really busy and active in my community. Um, wholeheartedly believe in giving back um, to the community that raised me. Um, like I said, I've been a resident of this community for 30 plus years. Mm-hmm. I'm a graduate of the Merchant Marine Academy. Uh, in Kings Point, New York, and um, I've been employed with Noresco um, LLC for 20 years now uh, as a mechanical engineer. So I just want to ask, um, start with our first question for today. Who are you? So first, I'm a black man. Absolutely. Um, and I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of weight that comes with just that. Um, but I'm a man that loves God. Um, I love the Lord. I'm a Christian. Um, I love my family. Uh, I love my community. Um, I'm, I'm a, I'm a man of purpose. There's, there's not too many things that I do because the masses are going in that direction. I, I try to find reason for why, you know, why I do what I do, uh, why I listen to the music I listen to why I read the books that I read. Um, I ask myself that question a lot um, because I want my life to be lived with purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like a lot a lot of times we can get caught up in what the masses are doing and we lose ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's me. Me, I'm just, I'm just a person that seeks the alternative route. Um, I, try, I try and always take the road less traveled, um, which sometimes can be a, a, a longer road, but I find more value in that process than some of the shortcuts that may present themselves to me. Mm-hmm. So in the context of how, you know, Black men are presented today in uh, mass media and just uh, in, in many mediums from written to visuals, uh, representations, what is not true about you? Um, you know, I've, I've, I've struggled with that question a little bit. Um, you know, and, and because I was trying to put some framework around it, so I'm glad you you put the framework around it in terms of how we are perceived in in mass media. Um, what, what's not true about me is that I have value and depth. Um, I feel that we, as black men, are often portrayed as shallow uh, and, and and lacking lacking insight. Um, 
that we, we, we tend to be categorized more of victims of our environment and circumstance than men who actually question their environment and seek to be better than maybe where they've come from. Um, I, f- I feel like, so I think that that's, that's not true. I'm not a victim of my environment. Um, you know, I, I, I come from an environment that not always is positive, but my goal in life is to rise above the expectation. Um, you know, often, oftentimes expectations of us are limited. Um, you know, you speak well for a black man. Um, you do well for a black man. Uh, you know, all these, it's always a caveat. And, um, you know, I've experienced that in a lot of areas. Uh, and so it's funny, like, like I said, before you frame this question, I actually wrote down that what's not true about me is that uh, what people think about me isn't important to me. That's what I actually wrote down um, in thinking about that question. Um, because I think to, to overcome that perception, sometimes we as Black men have to put on that armor of, you know, I don't, I don't care what you think of me. You know, I don't care how you feel about me because everyone, society, sometimes even in our own homes have an opinion or a perception of who we are and what's important to us and, 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 and whether or not we're sensitive or not. And, and to kind of navigate through that sometimes, we put on this armor of, I don't care what you think of me. But the flip side to that is, I do care what people think of me. Um, I do want people to know that I'm more than what they perceive me to be. Um, but I don't feel I don't feel that in our society we're given that opportunity to be honest about that. Um, I think that when you know when we when we show that side of ourselves, we're often then labeled as weak or sensitive. You know, or you're a people pleaser. Um, so it's a it's a it's a it's a strange dynamic that's constantly going on. It's a constant battle, at least for me. You know, to you know present strong and confident, secure black man, but still want to be. I won't say everything for everybody, but want to provide and be an asset to the people that I come in contact with. Thank you for that. So, you know, you talked about, you know, you spoke about being sensitive and you being the man of a household of four women or five women. Is it five? Five women. Five. You know, you know in, in your interaction, with your with the women of your house, how do you show love, and how did you learn how to how to show love? Or to so, both. So, so that's that's what one that's what what I feel is unique about me because, you know, my father uh, is extremely difficult to read. Um, you know, I I could probably say maybe once in my life I'm 48, 
be one time in my life I've seen my father cry. Um, my father is steady and stable in every in every sense of the word. Like, you know, he goes to work every day. Um, I mean, even when that, you know, a lot of times when you have company or family coming from out of town, most times you take some days off. I mean, he could have people coming from out of town, and he's like, "Look, it's Monday. I got to go to work. I'll see you at four o'clock." Um, so that's that's always been my example. Um, but at the same time, the spirit inside of me is very sensitive to what to what's behind that. So I, I know, you know, as I got, as I've gotten older, I've been able to talk to my dad about how he grew up, um, and you know, in, in in a lot of in a lot of cases, he wasn't given the opportunity to, to share his feelings, and so, you know, that's 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 just all he knows. But it's so funny that you would ask that question because my father told me um, that he values the sensitivity in me because it's something that he wasn't able to express. So, you know, I, I learned that. I feel like first it was given to me by God, my ability to love and show emotion. Um, but my mom also, it's funny because my, my, my mom is a sensitive person, but she does she won't show it either. So I had two parents who were I'm sorry. Uh, I, I, I sometimes call my parents drill sergeants because they pushed us to get the best out of us. I, I have a, a, a sister. So it's me and my sister and I'm the oldest. So my parents always, it was almost like defeat was not an option. So when I dealt with things in school or when I dealt with things in life, my parents never gave me the, the it's okay option. They always said, evaluate why you're in this place. Did you put in your 100% effort? Was it something you could have done better? And if you can answer those questions and say no, then accept accept the outcome. But if you can look within yourself and say that there was more I could have done, or there was more I could have said, or I could have worked harder, then that's what you do. You work harder. We don't talk about how you feel right now, because you got to work harder to achieve what it is that you were trying to achieve. And so it's it's a weird dynamic because. You know, I didn't have like an overly sensitive mom and an overly sensitive dad. I had like two people who basically said, you know, you get the world out there is cold and you've got to make sure that you're able to self-evaluate how you navigate through that coldness. And, and I, I actually, at, you know, as an older person now, I value that. You know, I talk with a lot of a lot of young men. Um, young women, even my, like myself, even with my daughters, you know, they, they tend to have, when they, when they face opposition, they're looking to blame or they're looking like, well, why is this happening to me? But my first thought is what am I doing to have me in this situation? Now, if I'm not doing anything, then, okay, what's the next step? Who's at fault? 
what you know what what went wrong. But my first step is, you know, hey, if I'm not getting if I'm if I'm not earning the money that I want to earn on my job, or am I working hard enough? Am I applying myself correctly to the tasks that I'm being given? You know, am I showing up when when I'm expected to? Now, if I can answer all those questions, yes, then I'll go to the other areas. You know, does my boss have an issue with me? Or, you know, is there some sort of bias on my job? It's usually the second layer for me. It's not the first layer. Um, that's that's and so at home, I tend to have a similar, a similar way of showing love. Is that um, but but as you said, with women, I tend to be more of a coach than a drill instructor. So I I want to make my daughters and my wife feel comfortable for where they're at, but I want to let them know that I'm here to help them get past it. And and so I've I've found for you know in our household that that that, that kind of works with us because my wife is the drill instructor. Like my wife is listen girls, you got to do this. You can't ask for no favors. You got to get it how you get it. You know what I mean? So I've had to learn how to be the other side, how to be the the one like, okay, after mom talks, then I'll come in the room and have like, hey, let's have a conversation about that. What do you think you could have done better in that situation? Could you have talked to mommy differently? Could you have studied a little bit harder? Okay, if, if, you, if you look at me in my face and say no, then you, you got to toughen up. And get it done. But if you can look in my face and say, "Yeah, Dad, I could, I could, I could have handled this a different way," then let's talk about how we can handle it differently next time. And so, I think through having women, you know, through having daughters, it's 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 given me the opportunity to, as the Bible tells us, to look beyond a person's faults, but actually see their needs. Um. Oftentimes, I don't think we do that well enough. Um, we tend to take people at face value when really everything that people are giving us is coming from somewhere. It's coming from something. And that's really what we need to tap into. You know, it's 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 the need. Well, what are your needs? I can, I can see your fault, right? I can see you failed the test. I can see you got fired from a job. I can see that your, your relationship isn't working out. But what is your need, right? And, and 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 it's deeper than just passing the test, having a good relationship. It's but it's 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 you got to dig deeper, you know. It it could be like I said, like with my dad, you know, not feeling the love growing up, so wanting to be able to be heard, but nobody really hearing you because they see what's on the outside. That you know they so you have to look, you know. I've learned to look beyond the fault. And really see the need. And, and there is where I find strength. Because it's very, I, I always say, it's very easy to critique and very difficult to find a solution and solve. And so I'm less, I'm less to talk about the critical side and more to talk about the solution. But what's extremely important about me that I don't want ever to be lost is that we can't be freed up until we identify the fault. So there is a place for the fault. Um, I, I, I tend to struggle with that, uh, even in my own field, because I work in construction, 
as an engineer. And a lot of times, you know, we'll be at the table with a, with a problem and everyone has a solution, but nobody wants to talk about the root cause of the problem. So it oftentimes it's the person or the entity or the, or the, or the contractor that caused the problem. That's actually coming up with the solution. <laughs> Right, but 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 I always want to say, okay, let, let first let's identify where you made the mistake, so that this way we don't make that mistake again. But now let's move forward to how we're going to fix it. And oftentimes, no one wants to stay in that place of how we made this mistake. They want to move past that, and, and and I I feel you. We do need to move past it, but we have to understand how we made the mistake. You know, it's and what's true in, in 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 the work field is true in our communities, right? It's true, it's true in our marriages, it's true in our relationships. You know, we have to be able to identify the root issue, just identify it, call it out, and then move forward. Because when we call it out, then we can say that's a boundary that we we don't want to go back there, right? We we know what going there will lead to. But if we never talk about that, then we always talk, it's all roses and everything is happy. And let's just look to the brighter side. Yeah, we, let's look to the brighter side, but let's not, let's not over, let's not overstep that dark side because there's a lot of lessons in that dark side that can help us on the brighter side. Um, you know, I, I'm real active in the community in different, different, different areas. And that's one of the big things I think people, feel that conflict resolution is, is paramount, but root cause analysis, sometimes it's just that it's just as important. And I see it a lot in the political realm because we tend to, to donate and provide monies to communities in the same areas and get the same results. Yeah. We feel good about the money. Oh, we've given a million dollars to you know, to the community effort, but the community effort hasn't produced what we wanted it to. But then the next year comes around and here's another million dollars. There's not, you know what I mean? And so, and so when you get people to come and say, okay, I want you to keep giving the million dollars, but let's talk about how we're, how we're wasting it because we're not looking at the, the efficiencies that are, that, that, that we're losing out of, you know, yeah. so trying to put kids into college, but, we're not exposing them to enough opportunities. So we have a pile of money for their growth, but they're not taking advantage of it. And so then you get groups of people that will come see that money there, take advantage of that money. And now the community is saying, well, why'd they come and take our money? Hmm. But what it was was they saw that opportunity, they capitalized on it because we weren't looking at why we weren't positioning ourselves to grab that that opportunity. Yeah. Let so, me ask you, let me ask you. So when you so we talked about you know who you are as, as a person, uh we talked about what wasn't true about you, what is true about you. So so what is true what, what is true about me is that I feel that we can rise above any situation that we're placed in, whether we are born into it or placed into it. I firmly believe that we can pull ourselves out um, regardless of the circumstance. 
Now, let me ask you, is there a prototype for you? Are you, you know, are you represented on the Cosby show? I mean, where can I find you on television? I mean, you know, uh, you know, and, and so when I, when, so when I'm asking you this question, I'm, I'm thinking like, where are you in this? And, and, and is there a model of you somewhere that I could find? Or are you unique and that you have to just tell me who you are? Because, because I, I don't see a lot of variety in terms of who black men are, right? So you being a, a, an individual, unique, um, charismatic black man, right? We know that just from listening to you so far. But if I saw you on the, on the big screen, or if I saw you in the room, what is true about you that may be different or the same as other black men? That's a tough one. Um, because I, mean, I think I think that there is a there like you, you mentioned like the Cosby show. Like I I remember growing up seeing myself like, you know, one of the one, one of the kids in the family. Um, but then I quickly learned as I got older that my family wasn't the Cosby's, you know, my, 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 my mom and dad didn't go to college and, you know, like I, they, you know, we, my relatives weren't, you know, we weren't sitting around the table having those conversations that they were having on the Cosby show. Um, but what I do know is that the friends that I have that I believe God placed in my life, uh, their families gave me insight on who I wanted to be. And, and so it's it's difficult to actually say, if, where am I really at on the big screen? Because uh, like I said, you know, my, my parent, like my mom, you know, I'm an engineer. My mom didn't go to college. My mom barely made it through high school. You know, my dad was a carpenter, um, but he didn't go to college. Uh, you know, but but what they did do was encourage me to go to college. So they knew the importance of it. But at home, the conversations were more about God, um, about when I leave the home, I'm a representative of this family. Um, and so my actions, my words, my deeds represent my family. And so, but when I said my friends, like, but then I had like one of my best friends, his mom, you know, he grew up in a single parent home, but his mom would challenge us as, as men constantly for what I said when we started this conversation for depth. It was his mom that, like, if I went home and told my parents that I wanted some Jordans, they would either say, we got it to give you, or they're too expensive. That's it. But when we went to his house, his mom would go, y'all sit down and tell me why you want a pair of Jordans. And then we'd say something crazy, and she'd be like, that's it? That's all, all you got? Like, so you want us to go in our pocket and invest in something on your feet and that's all you had to tell me? She'd be like, I want y'all to go back. And next week, we'll talk about this again. And that was from his mom, you know? So it's funny, like, you know, we would sit at her, you know, we would sit at her house, or, well, her, her apartment, right? They lived in an apartment. And we would go to the apartment, 
and the way he cared for the things he was given, you know, I didn't have the same value system for the things that were given to me. Um, you know, my father would buy me new sneakers, and if I didn't keep them clean or didn't respect them, I was in trouble, right? I was getting the I was getting the whooping. Whereas his mom would have these deep intellectual conversations with him that would almost like there would be no way that he would, you know, it wasn't even a, it wasn't even corporal punishment. It was like mental punishment, you know? And so I value, I value her. I mean, she she passed away, but uh to this day I, I credit a large part of my desire to be deeper and to know my why from my conversations with her. Um, you know, our conversations with her were, I mean, anything in any way, what we, you know, I, I was in, I was in, in a junior high around the time, you know, with the medallions, the leather medallions with, you know, and we would like, you know, she'd some of them, well, what, why, what, what, what's that medallion that you want? What's that a symbol of? What do those colors mean? And she would almost make you feel like embarrassed. Like if you didn't know, you started to like research it before we got to her house. We're like, look, we know Miss Williams about to ask us why we wearing this, you know, why we wearing our, why we breaking our hat to the back? Does that look, you know, we got to know why. Everything about her was a why. And so uh, I guess like to, to go back to your question, I don't think I fall into any one category. Um, I, I think I think that I am a product of the environment and the conversations that I had, right? And, and mind you, these conversations weren't conversations about family structure or finances or college. They, you know, conversations with her was about your why. Conversations with my parents was about your perception and image like my mom would always say like a bad reputation is hard to get rid of and so you put both of those together and you know it makes me who i am like you know i'm i'm very cognizant of how i am viewed outside of my home um i understand that you know there are there are people who gain strength from my life, from my walk. So, you know, but at the same time, that comes with a lot of responsibility. It comes with a lot of weight. It's a burden because there are times that I may be frustrated and just want to yell and realize like, well, if I go outside and do that, you know, the young man that lives next door that sees me all the time may see that. Um, and he may not understand that. We're not in a position for me to explain that. And so sometimes it, it can be it can be stressful. Um, there was a there was a clip on. Wow, there was a show that was on. Um, with, with I think it was Tay Diggs, um, and he had a moment. He was like an NFL football player that had an injury, and he was having a, a discussion with how when he left his neighborhood and finished college and, and was and was drafted into the NFL that. He felt the burden of being successful for his community. And, and, and I, I've often felt that, I, you know, I live in, in Westbury, Long Island, but the town I live in is called Newcastle. 
And historically, and even now, Newcastle is not a favorable place. People don't talk highly of Newcastle, right? When they, when they, when you say Newcastle, they go, oh, you know, that's a rough area. And it's Long Island, so it's not a rough area. But it is an area that, it's an area that there is lower to middle class individuals. And so there's, there's a struggle there. And there's all, and oftentimes, um, I sit on the school board in Westbury. I remember early on in my political career, um, I was at a debate and I had a resident that lived in Westbury. So Westbury is the more middle to upper middle class area. Newcastle is more of the lower class, you know, lower middle class, low, you know, poverty level. And I asked, and I asked this gentleman what he felt was the biggest issue with our school district. Now, him not knowing me and not seeing, well, they, they saw my resume because that was all laid out, but there was no photographs with the resumes. So he says to me, it's those kids from Newcastle. Now, those kids from Newcastle come from broken homes. They come from poor homes. And so their, their level of education and drive is lower than that. And so, you know, I, I listened and we we got up on the dais for, for the for the meet the candidates. And when the moderator read my resume and I stood up, that man left the room. Because wow. the resume didn't wow. match the neighborhood. Wow. And so it was big for me. Um that's that's always been, you know, like for me, that became my why, right? That became my why that people wouldn't look at this neighborhood that way. So when my wife and I got married and we looked for we were looking for a house, first thing I said to her was, if we find if we can find a house in Newcastle, then let's buy it. Well, you know, she's not from the area, so she's like, Well, why? And I said, Because that's the last place that someone would think a person like me with my mm. resume would choose to live. Mm. I said, but how can I make a difference in this community if I'm not willing to live in the community that I want to change? Mm. And so we've been in this house now for not almost 10 years. And it's something that it's something that really makes an impact because I, I actually saw uh 4th of July, I saw our director of security. And um she said to me, uh, I was walking my dog. And she said, uh, you live around here? Now, I've known her my entire my entire life. Um, oh. And she said, you live around here? I said, yeah. I said, I live a block away. And out of her own mouth, she says, I have a whole new level of respect for you. She said, I thought you lived on the other side of town. Wow. And I said, well, why don't you say that? I said, you see me? I was like, you see me around? She's like, yeah, I know. She's like, I know you grew up here. I know, I know, I know you from this neighborhood, but I had no idea that that's where you bought a house. And so it was like at that moment, like to me, that was success. Wow. Right. That was like, yes, like that's why I do what I do, you know? And it, it hasn't been easy. It, it hasn't been easy because there's times that I sit and look and say, you know what? We could live over there, you know, but there's, there's, there's children that I'm able to touch and that I'm able to see and talk to. And when they see me come out of the house, 
I'm not making a house visit. No, I live here. So you're, like, you're wow. so in other words, you're the you're the you're the, the, the living proof of a Cosby inside of the neighborhood. Right. They got you right next yeah. door. The 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 household with you know stability and 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 against the narrative, speak that speaks against the narrative that's often presented on television. You know, I was wondering, you know, you talked about, you know, you don't have to live there. You talked about your resume. Let, let's go into that, your resume. Let's go into how you became successful, what you had to go through to become successful. Like, you know, let's talk about, I know we, we offline, we talked about, you know, that first computer. We talked about, you know, we talked about you on, on that campus and, and the process for getting into your college. And so share some of that, they enlighten us to that, because that's a different route that many uh, young people in the men of color are not aware of. And so share your, some insight on that. Absolutely. So, so, so yeah, like I said, I was, a, I'm a graduate 1997 of the United States Merchant Marine Academy in Kings Point, New York. Um, that school is a small uh, service academy, similar to West Point, Annapolis, Coast Guard Academy. Um, and literally, so when I was a senior in high school, uh, because my parents were what were, were how they were, um, I was often called to the office to meet with the military. You know, like when the when the recruiters come to the school, they want to meet, right? And I would go, I would come down to the office, like, what do you call me for? Like, oh well, you know, the Navy is here. I'm like, I don't want to join the Navy. You know, all the army is here. I don't want to join the army. And so, you know, like I would always come and say, oh, okay, sorry, you know, we thought this may be a good opportunity for you. I'm like, no, I'm not interested. So I would go back. Um, and my mom and dad, like I said, they always said to me, wherever you want to go to college, we will do whatever we need to do to ensure that you get through your four years of school. And they didn't have a plan. <laughs> they didn't have a plan. They didn't have money saved. They just said, if we got to get extra jobs, if we got to mortgage the house, if we got whatever we have to do, we don't want finances to be a boundary to your education. So back to what you said about the sensitivity, right? Because I heard them say that, I'm in, I'm in high school and the guidance counselor, one of the guidance counselors, his brother was the admiral at King's Point. And so he says to me, well, Rodney, did you ever think about the Merchant Marine Academy? I said, no, I don't want to go in the military. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't looking to go that route. He says, well, why don't you, you know, if I can set up a tour for you, you know, why don't you just go and see? And maybe it's, maybe it's something that you'd be interested in. So he set up a, a tour. I went to the academy. Now, I'm a senior. So the process for applying to service academies usually starts the end of your sophomore, junior year. You start this process because you need to have a congressional nomination. Um, you need to either be nominated by a congressman or senator, you know, things of that nature. So you need to start making those relationships and connections early. Mind you, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a senior, so I hadn't even started this process. So I went to the school. And listen, I was a Boy Scout growing up. You know, like I said, my dad and my mom, my father was, my father's from Bermuda. So in Bermuda, it's mandatory that you join the Bermuda Regiment, kind of like a draft almost, and you give two years. So my father was a drill instructor in the regiment. So I always had a sense of discipline, but it wasn't the route that I wanted to go. So I get there on the campus. 
see, it's, it's you know, clearly there were no African American people on campus. Um, so I come back and I'm talking with the admiral, and he says, he goes, if you're able to get a congressional nomination, this this this, this school is tuition free. So at that moment, my mind immediately went to what my parents said, that they were going to do whatever they had to do to keep me in school. So now I'm saying, well, if I could get into here, I'm not going to put that burden on my parents. So now I come back to school. I start the process. Long story short, I didn't get a nomination because at the time, um, I want to think it was Daniel Moynihan was the the political representative that I wrote a letter to, but it's almost like, um, it's similar to like, I guess, draft picks. Like they have a certain number of candidates that they can recommend to the Academy across the, the country. So I didn't get a nomination from him. Um, but I have, I had, I had, I had decent grades, you know, and I, and, and I had a good profile, but there was a, there was a black woman in the registrar at King's point. They called on the phone to my football coach in in Westbury and said, maybe there's another avenue. Send me his folder and maybe we can send his, like shop his folder around because sometimes there's political figures that don't have, you know, they, they have an extra pick or they don't have people who apply. I get a phone call back saying you got accepted. So I'm like, okay, you know, I got accepted. It must be in the cards for me. So now I show up, right? And it's a total, it's a total military environment. So July 4th, um, I think for me it was July 6th. July 6th, I show up and it's it's like boot camp. <laughs> you know, it's boot camp. My mom and dad are there, you know, I'm I'm running, they shave my head, I'm doing push-ups and sit-ups, and you know, my parents leave after that first day, and then I saw. In my class, I want to say there was probably uh, three, four hundred students. Maybe we had about six to eight black guys. Wow! And so I'm like, okay, right? Like, you, you know, it's it's a different environment because it's it's so structured. You know, you're up at a certain time, you sleep at a certain time, you're constantly being tested. There's information that you have to learn, so you really don't have time to socialize or get to know people outside of that you know like i may be running behind you in line and you trip and i pick you up i'm not gonna know who you are i'm just we're just all in this together and so it wasn't until you know but, but like while i was there i began to learn certain things about being the minority right mm. like you know westbury mm. when i graduated was predominantly black hispanic Haitian creole there maybe was three or four Italian brothers that I knew, friends of mine, and that was about it, right? And so now I basically, it was flip-flopped. You know, now I was in the minority. And so a lot of things that began to happen, like some of the microaggressions, right? When we had time, it was like, hey, um, was there a special program that you applied to to get into here? And I'm looking like, no. Like, like I got an, a nomination and I had to get SAT scores and I had to do the same thing you did. Why, why, you know, I don't know. I just, I was just wondering. 
and you start to think about it, right? Like what we we all are, we all know the process to get here. So why, why would you think there was a certain program? Um, you know, then I would notice like just differences like after the boot camp phase. So mind you, the boot camp's only two weeks. But in those two weeks, I told you like six to eight of us. After those two weeks, it was like four of us left. Wow. And I remember having conversations with some of those brothers at the time. A big part of it was a lot of them were from the South, mm. from military families. And they had a hard time with these Caucasian brothers like yelling at them, making them do push-ups and, you know, telling them to say, sir, yes, sir, and sir, no, sir. And, you know, we kind of, you know, some of us that were from the North were kind of like, look, man, it's part of the game. Just, just do what they say and we we finished with these two weeks and we can move on. But a lot of them was like, nah, this ain't for me. I'm going mm-hmm. back home, back to South Carolina. I'll play football or, um, you know what I mean? So we ended up, you know, we it dwindled down. After that two weeks, we had to immediately select our course load. So at, at the academy at that time, there was only an engineering major and a transportation major. And then there was some little, some little mixtures of the two majors. So you basically, after those two weeks, the first ten weeks—I mean, the first, the first, um, the first quarter—you took engine classes. The second quarter, you took transportation classes, and then at the end of that second quarter, they said, "Okay, what are you going to do? You're going to be an engineer, you're going to be a transportation major, or you're going to be a mixture of the two. And when you selected it, you basically were given the next four years of academia mm-hmm. that already planned out for you, wow. and so. You know, I did much better in the transportation classes than I did engineering. But like I said earlier, right, I had to ask myself, did I apply myself to it? And I said, well, no. So I chose to be take the engineering major, which I didn't do that well in, in that first experience. But I, I, I wanted to take that road because I felt that road challenged me more. And so then, you know, then from there, you're in school and, you know, I played football and I ran track but you know even there it's just like you get to the football team it was me and another guy only two black guys on the football team and now what do you think was happening oh okay you want to be you know you're gonna run the ball you no, hold on like I was a defensive player so you know I, I played defense and I didn't play offense but some of those stereotypes were there right you know mm. there were times that even the coaches would say okay I want Rodney to race Tommy why do you want me to raise him? You, you know, you, you know, I just want to see how fast you are. Stuff like that. Like, like I'm a specimen, like, like a horse, mm. you know? Mm. And it was like, you know, but, but, at, but at the same time, I had a roommate that was extremely inquisitive about African-Americans. But because we were roommates over time, we were able to share with each other where it wasn't confrontational to me um, because I had developed a relationship with him. So he would ask certain questions, you know, like, you know, it always amazed me that like African-Americans are so much more talented as athletes, you know, and, you know, in some, in some settings, a white guy can't say that to us, right. <laughs> you know, but he, him and I in that room, just me and him, it was like, all right, well, let's talk about that. You know, then I remember thinking like my best friend's mom. I'm like, why are you asking me that question? You know, and, and he would literally say like, I'm asking because I wish I was more athletic and I want to know what I can do 
to better myself. You know, and so there were so many, there were so many experiences like that that I had. Um, I also, you know, noticed, I learned what it was like to be the minority, like going to the gym. I'd go down to the gym early. Mm-hmm. I was there. I put on Hot 97 on the radio, mm-hmm. little transistor radio down there, turn it on. And then maybe a group of my fellow football players or students would come down. And the first thing they say is, well, who turned this, who turned this on? They walk over and change the radio station. They wow. wouldn't even ask. Initially, I'm thinking like, oh man, you didn't even ask me. But then I thought to myself, is that how those Caucasian students felt at Westbury? When we went into the weight room and had had Hot 97 on and dared them to change the station? And so it was a it was a reversal for me. It was, it was for me, like I said, to not, not go with mainstream and say, you guys are racist, but to say, hey, is there any reason why you don't like this, this radio station? And really have a conversation about it. Mm. And oftentimes that conversation yielded the result that it's just not what we do. Similar to how it was when I was in high school. It's just right. not what we do. Then I started to say, like, well, man, my friends, my white friends in high school probably felt uncomfortable at the prom. Nobody asked for their song request. They probably felt uncomfortable at parties. Nobody said, well, hey, is there certain music that you want to hear? We weren't, we weren't racial. Like we didn't, we didn't hate them. It just wasn't what we did. Right. And so I, I began to look, look at things through that lens. But at the same time, I realized that knowledge of who we are, knowledge of self, knowledge of our culture is still the most important thing that we need to have. Right. And so that was when I started to think about, well, maybe we should have some sort of a group where the black students could just get together and just listen to the radio the way we want to listen to it Mm. or you know, speak in a way that we want to, that we want to speak, call our parents. There were things that we couldn't do, not because it was frowned upon, but because we were the the minority. Like when you have a, a campus of a thousand or 1500 folk and there's three black people, that's a real minority. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's a lot of things that just happen where your voice is not even, they don't even, they don't even look to hear your voice. And so I started this, like, started like a group. We called it a BKP. Um, and we called it, we called that, that we called it that for Black Kings Point. But when we wrote our charter and when we started, we called it Broadening Kings Point because we realized that we wanted to have a voice, but we had to broaden the, the school the students, the faculty had to broaden their horizons so they can understand, like, listen, there's another group of people, even though we're small in number, there's there's things that make that will make our stay here comfortable as well. And so that's what we, we you know, we began to talk about it and kind of just, you know, it was kind of a cool thing, place where we could let our hair down, um, you know, because every, you know, on the military campus, everything had a uniform. You know, you had pajamas that you had to wear to go to sleep. You had uh, clothes to wear when you went to the gym. 
You had clothes to wear when you went to class. So you always had a level of discipline. But when we had our meetings, you could just come and just sit down and you didn't have to worry about who was coming in the room. You know, we'd have a radio and turn the radio on. And it's so funny because that 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 group, that club, is actually now called the Diversity Club at King's Point. And uh, I recently, last uh, February, during Black History Month, went back to visit. And it was kind of, it felt good because we did the exact same thing. Like, it was myself and some other uh, Black alum, alumni. We were there. We went to, you know, a, a quiet location. We turned the we turned the Bluetooth speaker on, start playing the Isley Brothers, and you know these you know the, the students came in and they just you could just see when they walked in the door it was like a load like oh okay yeah yeah right. I, I I haven't heard that in the, I mean it's different now because people have phones and headphones and they can they can they they're listening to music that they want to but you know we remembered it the alumni remembered when we didn't have that you know like mm. we didn't have a I think we had like those little Walkman, you know, a Walkman or something, and that was found, you know, that I was frowned upon. So it's, it was just good to see that transition. And so, you know, now I'm trying to work with the school in more outreach for African American students because we're still under, um, I won't say underfunded, but the number of African American students at the Merchant Marine Academy is still well lower than so, where it should be. You know, in talking to you, I've never, I've never heard of a merchant marine and what they did. And I know I asked you several questions about. So what you know, like, what do you do? What does that mean? Are you a marine? Are you, you, you know, you are you getting off a warship and running onto land with a gun and you're and you're shooting, or are you an infantry man? I mean, what does that mean to be a merchant marine? I had no clue. So could you tell us what, what that job entails and what that looks like and what the you know like what do you, what do you spend your life in that work in? Just, just give us a, a, so, a descriptive as possible because we need to know. Absolutely, absolutely. So, 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 so the a merchant mariner is part of the Department of Transportation, not part of the Department of Defense. Okay. And the the, the most simplified way to break it down is that that ship in New Jersey that caught on fire with all those cars. Mm. The crew that mans that ship. There's licensed and unlicensed crew. The licensed crew are usually um, college graduates or they've worked their way up from entry level up to like, they're considered like management, officer level. And so merchant mariners, they're basically engineers and captains that drive and operate those ships. So those are oil tankers, those are car carriers, those are um, refrigerated uh, vessels where it's basically intermodal, you know, our transportation system. So those containers that you see on the railroad, you know, those containers at some point may end up on a ship going mm. to another country. Um, mm. you know, I, I sailed on a Hess, the, you know, the, the fuel, the fuel gas company Hess or fuel oil tanker. And so we were transporting fuel from the refinery in the Virgin Islands to New Jersey. That was what we went back and forth. So it's so, so, so what does that look like? Are you are you like, I mean, I mean, what does that look like? Are you what are you doing daily on the ship? I mean, what's life for you as an engineer on a ship like that? 
So as an engineer on the ship, so you have a chief engineer, a first assistant engineer, second assistant engineer, a third assistant engineer. Then you usually have uh, two members of the engine department that aren't licensed. So I, I was, after graduation, I was a third assistant engineer. So that means I'm responsible for the systems on the ship, right? So when you think about a ship where you have a crew, you're going to have a propulsion system, so like the main engine and the propeller. But then you're going to have, on, on diesel ships, you'll have diesel generators that supply electricity to the entire ship. So every day you're going to have generators running. You're going to be serving an electrical panel. That electrical panel is going to be serving the lighting system, the air conditioning system, the heating system, the water system. So as an engineer on, on, a, on one of those vessels, your responsibility is to maintain that equipment. So if you have three or four diesel generators, you may need two to run 24-7 and the other two are, are on standby. So you'll get up in the morning, you'll come down, and what will you do? You'll do maintenance on the two generators that's on standby. And then when you finish that maintenance, you'll shut them down, put the other ones on. And now when that when those two cool off, the next day you do the maintenance on that. And so every, every system on a ship, a ship is like a floating city. Hmm. So the engineers are responsible to maintain that city from, from water, right? You have to take showers. So you need to have fresh water. And usually that's made from the salt water. So there's like a desalinization plant that takes salt water, makes it fresh water. Then that fresh water gets pumped to all the showers, to the kitchen, to the, you know, to, to anywhere. If there's a fire on board, you'll use fire pumps to, 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 to charge your fire hoses. Um, so that's on the engine side, right? You you have a sewage system, right? There's bathrooms. Mm. So the, the sewage on the ship goes into holding tanks. Those holding tanks then have to be uh, treated. And then when, 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 when they're of a certain um, content that they can be released into the ocean, a certain, a certain distance out, then you're able to do that. In some instances, you have to wait till you get ashore and you pump the sewage into the local sewage system. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a floating city. And so that's, that's the engine side, right? You're, you know, also throughout the night, you're, you're monitoring the vessel because that main engine is running all the time. So it's like I said, there's, there's four engineers. So maybe everybody takes a, a shift of watch. It's called for four, for four hours. So you may get up at four in the morning and you'll be on watch from four to eight. From four to eight, your only job is to make sure that that engine keeps running, make sure that all the temperatures and pressures are correct. And you that's all you do. But then at eight o'clock, you may start that maintenance work. And you may do that work for, you know, an eight hour shift or a seven hour shift. And then you'll, you'll, you'll rest and then you're back up to do your watch again. So, at all times, there's someone manning that injury. So this has so, to, this is something that is not optional. This has to happen. It has to happen, right? Right. For this ship now, to be now, functional, right? For the ship to be functional, for you to get to point A to point B. Now, where the academy comes into play is the fact that in times of war or or global conflict, the Department of Transportation 
comes under the Department of Defense's contract to do the same thing, right? So if we have a situation taking place like during Desert Storm, we had a situation where we had to get troops and supplies to another country, we can't do it all through through air. So in that case, they'll load tanks and weapons onto a merchant ship because a merchant ship is just a big cargo ship. I always tell people a merchant ship is like an 18-wheeler on the water. Mm. So they'll load that up and they'll say, okay, we need you to take all these supplies over, over to the Middle East. But think about it. We're sitting duck. We have no weapons to defend ourselves because we're Department of Transportation. So what happens is we travel with a convoy of military like destroyers and aircraft carriers. And so what the academy does and what my job would would be in that in that realm is to be a liaison between the navy and the and the ship. Because remember, the people on the ship are not all military. On a merchant ship, it's not a military job. But when we're contracted to be military, they use merchant mariners from the from King's Point that have that have the commission in the Navy to be able to liaise between the two, to talk to the aircraft carrier, to let them know what we're doing, to, to give updates so that we can travel safely to get where we need to go. But once we get there, we, we come back. We leave everything there and we come back. So it's a different it's a different nature, and it really was birthed during World War II. Um, there was a lot of uh, they called them Liberty ships. And the Liberty ships were responsible to take troops and cargo and bring them into war. Mm. Well, at that time, the way the way you win a war is you cut off your supply chain, and so you had all these Liberty ships that were being bombed, that were being torpedoed by German submarines. And so that's that's kind of how the whole the whole merchant marine, you know, and King's Point, right? King's Point was actually found started to put officers on those Liberty ships. And I and we actually learned that like the first couple of classes, the first classes out of King's Point, you only went to school for like six months. And then you were on a Liberty ship. And and you were you were piloting and maintaining that ship to get it overseas to bring supplies and troops and you were under attack all the time so um one of the best movies now to watch if you ever want to get another glimpse of the merchant mariner life is uh captain phillips you ever get a chance captain phillips with um well i forget the, the actor's tom name hanks? tom hanks yes yep when the, pirates, when, the pirates, when the pirates got him out there in the sea yeah, exactly. Yeah, that yep. was tough. So that that is the day in the life of a merchant seaman. Mm. It's exactly what you saw on that ship. Like when I was when I was training on the ship to sit for my Coast Guard license, we used to get those. If you remember from the movie when they got a, a fax that told them there were pirates in the area, right? We would get those. We would get those faxes. It would say you're entering dangerous water. Be on the lookout. You know how, like, when the pirates were coming up to the, the ship, they they spray water hoses at them. Yeah, because that's all we have is water hose. They call them a water cannons, right? 
yeah, those water cans you spray in the water. So it's it, it's 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 um it's a real that, that's a very good depiction of the life of a merchant seaman. Um, a lot of times merchant seamen start off as longshoremen, mm. and those are those are those are people who work at the docks. So they load and unload ships, and then they'll do that, and then they work their way up. And in the merchant uh, merchant seaman life, we call it being a hawse piper. So they work their way up the horse pipe. A horse pipe is where the chain comes out mm. that connects the anchor. Right. anchor. Right. So when, when you hear someone say that I'm a horse piper, that means they, they may not have gone to college. They may have started off as a longshoreman and then became like a cook. And then from a cook became a steward. And then from a steward said, you know what? Maybe I want to be in the engine department. So they became a cleaner, a wiper, they call them. And then they and they worked their way up to be a third assistant engineer. Me, I went to college and took all the coursework and passed tests. So that was a that was another experience because when you get on a ship, you're not getting on a ship with other King's Point graduates all the time. You may get on a ship with a horse piper. So now they're looking at you with a little attitude too, like, oh, you silver spoon boy. You know, you went, you went to college, yep, you, you know. Uh, my taxpayer money paid for you to get a license that it took me 15 years to get. And you got it. And this is your first ship. And so now you have that dynamic, right? You're like my first ship. I had, I had chief engineers ask me, Oh, so you're going to do this for the rest of your life. And I said, well, chief, I, I don't know. This is my first ship. And he was offended. He felt that as if I offended his career. But I said, I don't know. This is my first experience on a ship. And he's like, so you mean to tell me you're going to a federal service academy using taxpayer dollars and you're not sure if you want to be an engineer on a ship? I said, I'm not sure. And it was a rough, it was a rough couple of months on that ship with him. But at the end of it, you know, he he ended up taking to me. He helped me. He, he taught me a, a, a ton of a ton of information and a ton of knowledge. And, and when I got off, he wrote me a very good evaluation, you know. So, but the life of a merchant seaman is, is different. It's very different. You usually spend six months out at sea and some, and you either see six months at home. If you get lucky, you do like a six to six thing. Um, you could get in a situation where you're two months out and a month at home, two months out and a month at home. The pay is really well. Um, you you got to think you're, 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 you're living on the ship. So you really don't need housing and clothes and food. You just need work clothes. Um, you know, so there's a lot of, there's some lucrative money that's made um, in, in, in the business, but it's, it puts a strain on your family, right? You know, a lot of times you're not home. Um, you don't see your kids all the time. Um, you're making decent money, but it's a tough life. Um, you deal with storms, hurricanes, all that stuff we see. And when it gets rough, Listen, that, that when we see those maps on the news that the hurricane is in the middle of the Atlantic, there's some ships out there. Mm. <laughs> They're getting beat up, you know, and you're on that ship because you got to get, you know, you got to get that cargo from point A to point B. You know, those those cars in Jersey were going to Africa. There, there were people expecting that car, those cars to get there. So, you know, you have a job and that's, you know, that's that's your responsibility. So it, it's 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 tough. And one of the big things for me that I learned was that when you leave the shipping 
to come ashore. So if you're an engineer on a ship and you come to be an engineer on land, you can you can you can take a 50, 40% pay cut. Ooh. That's tough for a lot of people to make that transition. So you really have to be strategic about it if you're gonna do it. Because you know, like I said, you're doing a watch, four-hour watch, and you're working an eight-hour day. And you're in a union. So sometimes your union may say, hey, anything after eight hours is time and a half. So you're, you're, you're stuck on the ship. So you can work around the clock. You're making money around the clock. You don't have to, there's nowhere for you to go. You know, when, when you finish work, you're going to go to your room and go to sleep. Because the rest of the ship is all cargo. Mm. Right? The rest of the ship is all tanks. Or the rest of the ship is all food, foreign aid, uh, you know, um, the rest of the ship may be, uh, you know, um, uh, containers of leather coats from Italy, right? So it's nothing you can do out there. So you do a lot of reading. You do, you, you know, you, you, you watch you watch movies. I mean, now it's, you know, 2023. So I'm pretty sure there's, you know, all sorts of other ways to get media. But like when I was out at sea, we had videos, videotapes. Mm. It was so, you know, there was like satellite phones that cost you like $30 a minute to call home. So you weren't calling home, you know, because you had satellite phones. So it was, it was definitely a, a good experience for a black man before I was, before I turned 21. I, I saw, let's see, La Havre, France, uh, Rotterdam, Holland, uh, Felixstowe, England. Um, I traveled around the Cape. Of South Africa, um, I was in the Maldives, uh, uh, Bahrain, um, Jamaica, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, um, Saint Croix. You know, like I got to travel to all those places as a merchant seaman before I graduated college. Wow! Because I needed to log uh, three hundred sea days before I could sit to take my Coast Guard license to become an assistant engineer. So the way the academy does it is they take half of your sophomore year and half of your junior year, and they send you out into the into the industry. Um, but they usually send you out by yourself. So they put you on a ship in the engine room with other engineers, but not other classmates. They'll pair you up with a transportation major. So the transportation major will go on the bridge and he or she will learn how to navigate, how to drive the ship, how to, how to plot the course. Mm. And then you're in the engine room learning how to maintain the engines and take care of the systems. So let me you ask you. Make so so in, in closing, you know, um, what advice would you give a young black man? So my first advice that I would give to a young black man is never second guess yourself or feel bad about where you came from. Um, know that where you were born and, and where you were raised was part of your, of God's plan for who you are. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's not something to be frowned upon, but use what you've learned to make you an asset wherever you go. You know, don't get caught up in the stereotypes. You know, embrace your culture. 
embrace who you are. And like I said, use it to be an asset. There's, you know, there's enough liabilities in the world. Make sure that you take your life experiences, good and bad, and use them to make a difference in someone's life, to make a difference in your community, to make a difference in your family. Like, don't get caught up in, in mainstream. Um, always ask yourself why. Why am I doing this? Why, why, why do I want this? And if you're comfortable with your why, then pursue it. But if you have a question about it, don't just blindly pursue it. Get the answers you need so that you know why you're doing the things that you do and what their outcome ultimately will be. Be intentional. Be intentional about what you do, what you talk about, who you talk to. Um, you know, know that you have value in this world and that you have to protect that value at all costs. Listen, on that note, man, that was thorough. That well said. And we do appreciate you, Rodney Kane, for being on this show today and pushing boundaries. You've left some jewels for us on the table today. We've been enlightened. We learned so much from you. And we have a, another source of information in terms of careers that we can pursue, what life is like, and um, very different perspective coming from another Black man. We do appreciate you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Pushing Boundaries. Once again, my name is Sharif Rucker. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do me a favor by commenting, subscribing, and sharing this podcast with everyone you know. All of these things are free and take very little effort, but would mean the world to me. Thanks again and stay tuned.